Our first reading today, we have the great privilege of hearing um, the story of the scroll in Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra, these two books of the Bible, are post-exilic, meaning they're, they're after the Babylonian exile, uh, around five or six hundred years prior to Christ. Um, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. Their intelligentsia, their uh, royalty, everyone um, of high society was was brought away in exile to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates. Israel was basically emptied out. It was a civil, religious, psychological disaster for, for Israel, for Judah. And um, there was doubt as to whether God really loved them still, whether they were still God's chosen people, whether he would be faithful and bring them back. But there were always these prophets, Ezekiel, um, etc., that, that said that God had, would not abandon them, had not abandoned them, and that they were going to settle back on the promised land again one day. And sure enough, Cyrus the Persian, he conquers the Babylonians, sends them back, and gives them a bunch of money to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, Nehemiah, who's kind of a, the civic leader of this, he builds the walls around Jerusalem. And Ezra, is the priest, is the one who orchestrates the rebuilding of the temple and then the uh, reestablishment of worship, basically, in Jerusalem, um, which had been totally destroyed. And they find, there's this story, they find a scroll buried there in the rubble. And it's the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Old Testament. And they get everybody together, men, women, and children old enough to understand, and they all stand there, and he reads the entire Bible to them, the first five books. And it takes days, and the people hear it, and their hearts burn um, to hear this word, this revelation that God gave them all those years ago, and that they're still here, and that he's still faithful, and that they're back in the promised land, back in the temple. And their reaction is to weep and wail, they were sad because they said, we, we messed it up. Look at all that God did for us, how faithful he was, and we just ignored him. We didn't say thank you. We, we cut all the corners we could on his rules, his laws. We treated him like a taskmaster and not like a good father that he wanted to be. And Ezra says, stop it. Knock it off. Don't cry. Today is, a, is holy. Today is good. We're home. And he says, rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. Go eat. Go celebrate. Go be with your families. Today is a good day. Um, they have to be reminded that this is good news. There was a saying, I can't remember who said it, but that the good news, you know, the gospel of Christianity is neither new nor good anymore. Like, we've all heard it, and it just sounds like basically what the people of Ezra's time were, were experiencing Catholic guilt 1.0. Oh my gosh, look at what we've, how bad we've been and how good God is. We're such failures. God must be so disappointed. And Ezra has to remind them, no, that's not how he feels about you. That's not the point of him revealing himself is to make us feel really, really bad about ourselves. It's to help us, to bring glad tidings to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to the blind, a year of favor from the Lord. God is love. He wants what's good for us. And so Jesus is also reading the scroll from Isaiah with all those things about liberty for captives and sight to the blind. And today the scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. That Jesus is the good news. He's the final revelation of God and what he wants for his people. 
He says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So if there's any spirit or voice in us that says Christ came to give us new rules to make us feel even worse about ourselves, because now it's not just don't commit adultery, it's don't commit adultery in your heart. Now it's not just don't kill, but don't even have anger in your heart. So it's even harder to be a Christian. And so naturally we feel worse about ourselves because nobody can live up to it. That's not Christianity. That's not the good news. Christ has come to give us life and so that we might have it more abundantly. Father Tim gave this talk uh, this week in the coffee shop, Catholicism 101, on the icon of the Trinity, Rublev's Trinity. You could Google it if you've never seen it before, but it's basically this icon, which is like a, a kind of an Orthodox Christian. Instead of statues, usually in the Orthodox churches, you'll see icons, which are like these flat images, two-dimensional, but that have this depth to them because they're images of heaven, that usually the saints or Jesus, the uh, Blessed Mother, and the icon of the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they look like three angels. And um, they're all kind of just looking at each other, sitting around a table. And they have things behind them, and everything in the, in the painting has meaning. Um, but what struck me about Father Tim's presentation was um, that the fourth side of the table, it's a square table that the Trinity is sitting at, the fourth side of the table is facing the viewer. And when you look at it, it's like they're looking at you saying, come on. And it's, it just bowled me over. You know, if you look at the, at the icon um, on your own time, maybe something similar will happen. Maybe it was just a unique grace. But it was like, what am I doing at this table? This is God. And the other beautiful thing about the icon is that the middle figure is the son, Jesus. You know, and obviously Jesus pre-existed, you know, 0 AD, Christmas Day. He, he, was, not, he was born in time at that time, but he existed for all eternity with the Father and the Son, uh, with, the, with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion. Um, but there the Son is in the middle, and the Father and the Holy Spirit create this kind of chalice shape. It's part of the symbolism of the, of the painting. And that's to signify that Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the one. It's his blood that lets us come to that table. And he's the food at the table that nourishes us and makes, the, makes it a celebration, a banquet. That's what heaven is, finally, is being invited into this table. And the question I have that occurred to me is like, what does God get out of that? What could it possibly benefit him that I come to the table and that I eat his body and drink his blood? It's all for me. And he didn't need to do that, but he went to a lot of trouble so that I could come to that table, so that I could share his life and drink it in and live it with him. Behind the father is, is um, like the image of a, of a house, kind of a Mediterranean house. And that's the father's house. And Jesus talks about this throughout the Gospels and the parables, that what the father's house is like, but particularly beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son, that the son comes back to the, live in the father's house again and is embraced. Even though he's sinned, he's run away, he's lived outside the father's house in alienation, he's always welcome to come back. And that's kind of like what that table is to me. The father's house is where... Um, it's simply freedom. It's simply being a child, uh, being loved unconditionally and totally faithfully. And you can have your tantrums, you can run off, you can cut corners and refuse to obey the rules like the, like the Judahites did. And you might even have to suffer the consequences of your actions with a couple 80, 90 years of exile, but he's always faithful and brings you back. And that's why rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. 
Do you ever have the feeling um, that there's more to life than this, than what, what, what's ever going on in your life? Or sometimes I have this feeling that I'm like rushing around, like trying to get somewhere, but then I think like, where am I actually going? Or like you're trying to get all your to-dos done and you, do, you feel like you're always busy, always have something to do, but you're wondering like, what am I actually trying to accomplish? What is the point of all of that? That's the question that the Lord has come to answer. Um, I, I'm in this program right now, a spiritual director program called IPF, the Institute for Priestly Formation. And it's a lot of priests who are like seven, eight, nine years in, like myself. But there's a couple that are, you know, 15, 20 years into priesthood. And they're taking this, they're learning how to be spiritual directors in this particular style, which is called the Ignatian style of spirituality, where it's about the discernment of spirits. When you're listening to someone talk about their spiritual life, you're listening for the voice of the, of the Holy Spirit, who is the consoler, the comforter, the encourager, and the voice of the enemy, the evil one, Satan, who is the one who discourages, who bites at us, who, who, who uh, accuses us. And... Um, that's the art of spiritual direction. It's also the art of your own discernment of spirits, your own discernment in your spiritual life. Is like, is this from the Lord or is this not from the Lord? And the telltale sign is, does it encourage me? Does it lift me up? Does it make me love God and make me feel more motivated to do something for him? Or does it sap me of my energy, suck away my life, make me feel ashamed or guilty, grow in me resentment? And I was really struck because there was this priest, and he's probably been a priest for 20 years, older than all, a lot of us. And he said, after one of the talks, he goes, you know what I've realized is that Satan has been running my entire priesthood. And I mean, that sounds melodramatic, but what he meant was like, I didn't know this. I didn't know that I was being pulled around like a, like a pig with a, a ring in its nose. Just like, here, I'm, I'm taking you over here. Uh, this person offended you, wrote you a nasty email. Here, come over here and wallow in it for like a week, feeling bad about yourself and angry at her. You know, and instead of doing something productive or instead of being humble, apologizing and reconciling the relationship, you know, it was just like the evil one doesn't, we, th we think of the evil one as like creating all these events, you know, running the world and um, uh, making bad things happen. But the world is the world. The evil one creates a narrative in our heart. He's an interior voice um, that says, you know, what that means that you're disappointed or that that person said that is that you're a bad person or they're a bad person, or the world's going to hell in a handbasket, or anything to get us to give up, to stop trying, to assent to the idea that it's not good news. Ultimately, you know, there's no point, and no one's coming to get me, and this is just the way life is. And the Lord Jesus is coming, and he's saying, no, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. Um, one of my New Year's resolutions, if I have a New Year's resolution, is to nurture joy. I realize that I can be kind of melancholic and feel sorry for myself, and it makes me feel deep or smart or something. It's, it's, it's pointless. Nurture joy, meaning rejoicing in the Lord must be your strength. What do I do to feast on what God is trying to give me? He's not getting anything out of it. He's not sitting up there with his arms crossed at that table in heaven being like, Oh, Connor, what a disappointment. I gave you so much. Why couldn't you do more with it? You know, he's saying, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. Um, I want to give you life. And that question, I'm running, I'm running around, I'm rushing around, but where am I actually going? I'm, I'm trying to do things. I'm, I'm always busy, but what am I actually accomplishing? Um, the answer is here. If we have eyes to see it, ears to hear it, it's the Eucharist. That's the table in heaven. 
Blessed are those who are called to this supper. Um, the point of it all is to be friends with God. That's why he made us. Not for us to do his chores or for him to get anything out of it, but simply to invite us into this abundant, infinite life. And the place where we come to it is this altar, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, um, who, who shed his blood, who sacrificed his body, his life, so that we could have life with him.